Welcome to episode 37 of the Swamp Flex Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm James Cohn. We are recording behind the ghost of the old rock and bowl in Mid-City, New Orleans. This, of course, is the podcast version of the movie review website Swamp Flex. So, it's been a month since we talked on the microphone. I actually have seen some stuff from 2017 in the interim that's been pretty interesting. I watched this movie, Patty Cakes. I don't know if you've seen the trailer for that. The ads have made it look like this kind of, like, quirky 8-mile comedy. Where this, like, white girl from New Jersey who's, like, overweight wants to be, like, a famous rapper. And you sort of, like, watch her go from, like, rags to, like, slightly nicer rags. Like, she, like, <laughs> never becomes, like, a full success in the film. But it's, like, a rise to, like, find her own voice and it's, like, kind of coming-of-age thing. But the movie itself is, like, a lot dingier and just weirder than the advertising makes it look. The aesthetic of it reminds me of, like, Chalmette in the uh, late 90s. Like, when I was a teenager, when, like, new Metal and, like, Cash Money were a thing. Like, it's got... Sort of the visual aesthetic of, like, a Cash Money album cover coming to life. All that excess of, like, the dollar signs and, like... Giant uh, golden tanks and... Yeah. Hell yeah, dude. It's got that kind of look to it. There's a bunch of, like, music video fantasy sequences in it. And the film sort of takes on a fairy tale modeled after the Wizard of Oz structure. (laughs) So, like, she keeps wanting to get signed by this one rapper named Oz that she's, like, obsessed with. And she sort of gathers her, like... Tin Woodsman and Scarecrow friends along the way to help her on her journey. And then she gets to a point where she can audition for this guy and it's like a total letdown. And then she has to like find her own way there. But I just like very much identified with like the aesthetic of it. Because like I said, there's like kind of a new metal like feel to it. And it just reminds me of like growing up in like a small industrial town. I guess Chalmette's kind of like the New Orleans scale New Jersey, you know? Like, there's yeah. the big cities, like, right there, but everyone sort of, like, stays insular. No, um, and I, I had that same experience living out in Kenner at that same, you know, time period when New Metal and all that was going on. So I kind of know the vibe you're talking about. And, and the funny thing about the movie is just, like, these people are kind of acting like they're in the summer after high school. You know, that feeling where, like, your kind of options are dwindling and you don't know what to do with yourself and you're not quite confident yet. Except they're all, like, in their mid-20s. And, like, I've just been sort of living that summer after high school, like, for forever. Yeah, I I know that experience as well. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, yeah, it's like a movie with, like, kind of genuine heart to it, which is not what I expected from the ads. Like, I thought it was gonna be, like, some kind of quirky Sundance, like, indie comedy, and it's really not. It's, like, this, like, weird fairy tale with a very specific late 90s aesthetic that I very much um, cool. identified with. And there was this one Bikini Kill needle drop in the middle of the film that like very much brought me back to high school. Like I did not expect that at all uh, in the middle of this movie. So I, it kind of felt like tailored to like trigger memories of like the late 90s, early 2000s for me. So that was really exciting. I also caught up with the new movie from Ben Wheatley, who directed High Rise last oh, year. Oh yeah, I like his stuff. Uh, he did that movie Free Fire this year. I don't know if you saw that yet. I saw a trailer for it. Is it good? Yeah, it's really good. It's it's basically a bottle film, so it's all trapped in this one warehouse where you're watching this one arms deal that goes wrong, and pretty much both sides in the deal are kind of like crooked scumbags, so you can't really like root for either side to win, and it kind of devolves into this like nonstop gunfight. So for the first 40 minutes of the gunfight, you kind of feel like you've seen this movie before, like it feels like... Those, like, post-Tarantino movies from the 90s where everyone's, like, shooting guns sideways and, like, throwing out these, like, quips. Like, it's, like, very clever dialogue. You're like, oh, this is kind of, like, a standard film. And around the hour mark, 
it just starts to get so weird that it's still happening. The idea of this gunfight lasting the entire length of the film... <laughs> That's great. ...starts honestly. to become, like, really, like, surreal in a weird way. Yeah. And do you remember in, like, The Revenant, after Leo is attacked by the bear, he's just kind of crawling around and gurgling blood, and it, like, becomes kind of like a weird joke that he's, like, even still alive? It, like, feels like a weird, like, zombie movie almost. That's what this one's like. All these characters are, like, dragging their bodies around, and they're, like, bloodied up. There's brains exposed. Because like, you, you never wounds. see the, like, aftermath yeah. of any of these shootouts, you know? This is, like, inhuman aftermath, though. Like, everyone should be dead from blood loss within the first, like, half an hour of the film. And then just keeps pushing it to this, like, absurd degree. <laughs> it sort of reminds me, you describing it, of uh, They Live, that fight scene. Yeah, it's like where that. it just, like, drags for so long that it becomes absurd it's like that but with guns and for 90 minutes hell yeah dude <laughs> that sounds great and it's got a bunch of really cool people in it like army hammer and killian murphy and brie larson and a few other people you'd recognize i, I definitely recommend that one <coughs> and definitely recommend sticking with it if you feel like it feels conventional in the first like half an hour 40 minutes like just let itself push to that extreme mm-hmm. and uh it gets really fun I, I wouldn't say it's quite as good as high rise which i loved but it is still a very enjoyable film sweet I, I definitely will have to check that one out and then this weekend i watched kuso which is the directorial debut of the beat maker flying lotus um, oh yeah even though in the film it's uh attributed to directed by steve isn't that movie supposed to be pretty controversial like Pretty graphic. Yeah, people were walking out of it like left and right when it premiered at a festival earlier in the year. Yeah, that's what I had read. It is full of semen, blood, pus, shit, every bodily fluid you could possibly imagine. It's absolutely fucking disgusting, and that's kind of the point of it. But it's also like more fun than I think people are giving it credit for. It's got a very adult swim style of like frenetic energy. And it's sort of structured like a horror anthology. Like, you know, like adult swim episodes are like 10 minutes long and that's pretty much as much of that kind of weirdo Eric Andre like nihilism you, that you take can, yeah that you can handle uh, this one at least smartly like breaks up it's different vignettes with each other so like you kind of jump from one aesthetic to another um, and it does have like some adult swim players in it it has uh, Tim Heidecker plays this sort of like weird rapist monster that appears in a toilet and then later has sex with one of these like fleshy knobs that look like those video game consoles from Existence. And you just watch Tim Heidecker completely naked humping this, like, flesh thing. That sounds um, really fucking weird. Dude. Yeah, so that's bizarre. And then uh, <laughs> Hannibal Burris plays a uh, trans-dimensional, like, Muppet monster with, like, a television for a face. Uh, also, George Clinton shows up as this sort of, like, strange doctor who cures people of their fears by bending over and allowing this roach to crawl out of his ass and then puke on your face. Like I said, it's like what? such a grotesque, like ugly film, but I was actually into it way more than I expected to be. A lot of people have sort of been finding it like empty and pointless and just sort of like shock value for its own sake. I actually like enjoyed it as like a horror comedy in its own <clears throat> weird way. Like not every joke works, but there's enough like weird ideas going on and enough like visual play to make it interesting. I mean, I definitely want to check that out, but yeah. it might have to be under the influence of <laughs> something to get through that. Yeah, I watched it around, like, 1 in the morning the other night. It was, like, kind of the headspace you have to be in, you know? It's also, like, conspicuously black in a way that I really like. Like, you don't see a lot of sort of gross-out horror films having that different perspective to it. Uh, the film has a lot of, like, jazz influence. So, Flying Otis is, like, the real-life grandnephew of John Coltrane. Uh, and the movie has this sort of, like, freak jazz, like, rhythm to it at first. Uh, there's this 
early 2000s rapper Bus Driver, who does like the kind of like heady like backpack rap. He does these like sort of weird spoken word beats to this like kind of off-kilter jazz and that that's your intro to the movie. And the movie has like kind of like a cool freak out like black aesthetic to it. It makes sense that George Clinton's in the film in a way uh, cuz he like totally fits in this aesthetic. It's just very much of like 2010s adult swim like frenetic energy. It's really busy. <laughs> yeah. It's busy and it's gross. So Obviously, it's not for everyone. Um, if you're going to watch one of these like sort of shock horror films from this year, I don't think this one's anywhere near as good as We Are the Flesh, which still is probably my number one film of the year by anyone. Uh, this one's more just like a weird curiosity. Like it's a weird like late night freak show, really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I definitely recommend giving it a shot. Maybe after a few beers or something in the middle of the night. Have you seen anything in the last month worth recommending? Yeah, not that came out in 2017. I haven't been to the theaters, but I saw a great. Kurt Russell movie called Breakdown. Have you heard of it? It's like from the the late nineties. It's got J T. Walsh. You know that character actor. He's been in tons of. Yeah, I don't recognize the name, but I'm sure it's you. It's, it's kind close. of like a Hitchcockian. This couple breaks down in the middle of the desert, and the wife goes off with this truck driver, and then she goes missing, and the truck driver claims he's never seen him before, and he goes on a hunt for his wife. But it's just like a really taut fast-paced, exciting movie. It's kind of like a little gem. Like, I did not expect it to be... From the late 90s, too? That's Yeah. And it's got um, this, like, kind of saturated sort of aesthetic to it, you know, because they're out in the middle of the desert. But it sort of falls apart at the very end. But I don't want to spoil anything. But, like, it's really good. I would definitely recommend it. What's it called again? Breakdown. Breakdown. Even that title. That's hard to, like, remember. Yeah. Yeah. So I saw that. I saw the new Jim Jarmusch movie, Patterson. Uh, yeah, I wasn't sure if I was interested in that one or not. It's weird. It's like a very just mellow, meditative movie about this, like, poet. Right. And, it, I mean, you could tell a lot of it's just coming from Jim Jarmusch, his, like, personal life or whatever. Honestly, I'm not a huge fan of Jim Jarmusch, and this is one of the better hmm. films of his that I've seen. Yeah, I'd say, like, Down by Law is the only, like, movie I care about from him. I've seen some others that are, like, but even, fine. But honestly, even that one, like, I'm not super high on it yeah. either. But, no, th- this was good. I like Adam Driver a lot. Right. He's really good in it, actually. Yeah, it's just good performances... Nothing too crazy, just kind of a meditative film. But it was a good watch. And the other thing I saw recently that I loved, that I thought I was going to hate, was this Will Ferrell, Mark Wahlberg comedy called Daddy's Home. Oh, God. Dude, I'm (laughs) telling you, this movie is funny. The jokes actually work, and they have good chemistry, and it should be awful, and it's not. It totally exceeded my expectations. Isn't it a Christmas movie? No, no. It's basically like Will Ferrell's trying to be a good stepdad, but his kids won't really accept him. And then their real father shows up and it's like Mark Wahlberg on a motorcycle. (laughs) He's trying to get his wife back. And they basically are like competing for the kids' affection or whatever. Yeah. it's one of these things where, like, it really is about the gags and kind of the running jokes. But I, like, was laughing constantly through the whole thing. And I was like, why is this so good? But apparently they're making a second one that's yeah. going to come out soon. Maybe the second one's set during Christmas, and that's where I picked that up. That would make sense. Uh, but I know the second one has, like, John Lithgow playing Will Ferrell's dad, which sounds interesting. But then it also has Mel Gibson playing uh, Mark Wahlberg's dad, which, like, kind of kills any, like, interest I have in it. But I've heard, actually, like, Sophia Coppola said in an interview that she's like a fan of the first movie and watches with her kids all the time. Oh, right. Yeah, it's it's really good. So I can see 
that it's just also like also John Cena makes an appearance. Oh well, now I have to see it. It's <laughs> I'm telling you, dude, it's really good. It should be garbage, but it's good. Huh. Well, today we're not talking about trashy comedies like that, which we usually would be. Mm-hmm. Today we're actually like tackling a couple big name directors from that like new Hollywood era. We're going to be talking about a few films from William Friedkin. We're going to be doing a countdown of our top five Friedkin movies. That would be then, awesome. He's one of my favorite directors. Yeah, it's been really great revisiting his stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's been a few years since I've seen anything from him, so it's mm-hmm. good to like kind of delve back into it. And then also we're going to be talking about a Brian De Palma film that's riffing on Hitchcock as hard as it possibly can. Yeah. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. There are some things that I like to get straight right up front so that there are no misunderstandings later on. Well, I don't blame you. I do not do animal acts. I do not do S&M or any variations of that particular bent. Um, no water sports either. I will not shave my pussy. No fist fucking and absolutely no coming in my face. I get $2,000 a day, and I do not work without a contract. Okay. I mean, fine. I mean, that's no problem. Okay. <laughs> I think we got a deal. Cheers. And now it's time for our Movie of the Minute segment. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. This time, we actually watched the movie together, which is kind of a rare treat. Yeah, I think it's the first time we've done that. This time, it was your pick. Uh, You made me watch a Brian De Palma movie titled Body Double. What is that? Brian De Palma is definitely one of my favorite directors ever. And I, as a kid, I remember my mom owning this movie. I never actually watched it, but I remember the box art with just like a peeping Tom looking through the blinds and this naked woman. It always like intrigued me. And as I've watched most of De Palma's movies, this one has always kind of fallen off the radar and I thought it would pair well with, you know, the Friedkin movies we're going to talk about. I guess you'd call it erotic thriller from like the late 80s. 1984. So it's oh, like 84. Okay. kind of early for those erotic thrillers, I think. It was very strange. It was definitely a weirder movie than I thought it was going to be. I was expecting a straightforward thriller and it was not that. There's a lot of quirky, weird moments in there that I think like actually make the movie memorable. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, what what did you think of it? And I guess we can start talking about plot details and all that. I mean, same here. I kind of expected one kind of movie from it because it starts like with such a straight riff on a couple Hitchcock titles, like specifically Rear Window, because he's like spying on his neighbor. Kind of like you were talking about the cover Mm-hmm. Of this man spying on a naked woman. And then also Vertigo, because the main character has this like claustrophobia that the camera plays with, uh, makes it look like he's like trapped. Uh, and then about halfway through the movie, there's just like this really major shift where it switches from those Hitchcock riffs to just something much weirder. And then by the time I got to the end credits, I remember being like very impressed with the way De Palma kind of smashes together all the things he enjoys about cinema into like this one weird object but not really feeling like it left me with a satisfied feeling. It felt like he had just sort of like kitchen synced the movie. He was just throwing everything he loves at the screen. And maybe the destination wasn't entirely satisfying. I don't, I don't know how to feel about how where it leaves off. Yeah, the ending is probably the weak point in the whole movie. But I, I also think De Palma has a tendency to do that with his films, like kind of ending on a sour note or like not ending the way you would expect like just thinking about like blowout but I, I don't know it it definitely like 
has a Hitchcock thing going on. It also starts with like a vampire movie. It has shades of like 1940s like noir going on like where they do the flashback at the end to like let you know what was actually going on and all that is like yeah it's an homage to the things he loves but then like you said the third act of the movie really had me guessing like where is this going right there's almost like a persona level shift in the middle of the film where like everything sort of flipped on its head and he just sort of blows apart his plot and you're like are we even watching the same character anymore And then the movie has to kind of like put itself back together again after that, which is a really interesting idea. I I think what the difference between this and like Blowout is for me, because that's the last De Palma movie you made me watch. Like Blowout feels like the art of like assembling a film. You watch sort of the art of cinema through like sound editing and like putting picture frames together and just sort of like the nature of cinema as like an object. And then this one is more uh, like the world of Hollywood. Or like genres, not film itself, but specific genres that yeah. De Palma is drawn to. Because it starts with, uh, like you said, that horror like typeface uh, looks like a vampire movie from the 50s. But, like, it has an 80s new wave vampire, like, in the main role. Uh, so it's already smashing together, like, the old and the new in that in that segment. Um, and then, yeah, there's the uh, Hitchcock stuff. There's some good noir. Um, and it does those, like, tours of movie sets that you see in, like, Singing in the Rain and Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Mm-hmm. Where someone's, like, walking around and there's, like, all these, like, fake backdrops for, like, different movies on the Hollywood backlots. Which is, like, always, like, funny to me. I'll never get tired of that trope. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, like, a pretty different aesthetic than Blowout because it's, like, consciously talking about the industry more than, like, the art of movies. And I really like the way that the movie is bifurcated in that way. Like, the first half is very much, like classic cinema from like the 40s and 50s maybe even the 30s like it's like old hollywood filmmaking and then the 80s influence like overtakes itself in the back half which is clued in by this feature-length music video for frankie goes to hollywood relax Uh, which totally like blew me away right just came out of nowhere like oh now we're watching a music video too And I think it's really funny that not only does he update it from that classic Hollywood stuff to a very 80s aesthetic, it's like 80s porn. He's like calling attention to Hollywood as part of like the porn industry and maybe even making fun of the fact that he and other directors that are his peers like make these like salacious movies with like lots of intense sexuality and murder and stuff. And it's kind of like a really good contrast between like the old noir stuff with like the rear projection driving and like the old fashioned vampire mm-hmm. stuff versus like sleazy 80s cinema like vhs like porn. quality porn yeah body double kind of feels like him dabbling in porn like softcore porn yeah it basically. feels like a skinamax movie and he even calls attention to it like the the main character the porno that he watches that sort of opens up the plot is called holly does hollywood so he's already like kind of making fun of that like out in the open I just want to say that I may not have, like, left the movie completely satisfied at the end, but that smashing together of, like, old-school Hollywood aesthetic with, like, intensely 80s pornography, like, VHS-era, like, schlock and sleaze, I found really interesting. I like that De Palma, and he has a tendency to do this, like, kind of take a scene as, like, far as you can take it, and then some. Like, you were talking earlier about the main character having, like, claustrophobia, and he goes into, like, a tunnel, and... 
it does these like really extreme camera angles to like mimic the like claustrophobia. But then right after there's a scene outside where him and this woman he's been stalking for most of the movie just randomly start making out and the camera does this like 360 spin around them with and there's like this backdrop that you can't tell if it's real. It looks like they're spinning on like a lazy Susan and the backdrop is like rear projection or something. Yeah. Uh, and the way the camera like zooms in and out and in and out in this like undulating way on the backdrop is like really disorienting. So there's like moments like that where he seems to really be like, I guess, having fun or like pushing the stylistic stuff like over the top. And right. I, I think that like makes it fun and like kind of ridiculous but in a enjoyable way neither half is underserved like obviously the 80s half with like the music video stuff and the pornography is gonna be like sort of an extreme just in general but he doesn't go halfway in on the 50s aesthetic either like that's very much pronounced and like over the top in its own way like the driving scenes of the main character driving around hollywood with the rear projection like looks so intensely fake and ridiculous but it's like entirely on purpose Mm-hmm. I guess we should get into the plot a little bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, it's kind of your standard Hitchcock setup, honestly. Like, we have this like actor who's down and out. He's an alcoholic who just caught his girlfriend cheating on him, so he's like kind of like homeless all of a sudden. He loses a, uh, a big acting job in that uh, opening vampire scene we were talking about. This like sleazy director played by uh, Dennis Franz kicks him off the set because he gets claustrophobia in his big coffin scene. He's like got these like dwindling opportunities. He doesn't know where to go. And then a new friend that he meets at a bar sort of sets him up to have a place to live for a couple months house sitting in this like ridiculous like space needle oh, this, type like, apartment. Yeah, very modernist like yeah, it does just look like the space needle. This like rotating bed and like it just seems like the kind of place that a porn executive would live right and so it's just this kind of great setup and it's good too because the main character like he's kind of a dumbass but you sort of feel for him like he's got his faults but he's not like a bad person but he is like a peeping tom well that's what happens is like the guy who sets him up in the apartment for a uh for a house sitting job sort of points him to this telescope that's pointed into his neighbor's bedroom window and tells him, like, at this specific time every day, she always does this strip tease in the window. And there's kind of, like, eerie song plays whenever he looks at the uh, lady across the way as she's, like, dancing naked in front of the window. It's like... Right. Uh, and she's wearing her diamonds around her neck and, like... Yeah, she's got this, like, belly chain jewelry right. on and she obviously is strip teasing. It's not, like... Someone bedroom dancing by themselves. Like, she's, like, seductively dancing as if she knows people are watching. And he tries to sort of ignore, like, looking at her and he can't help it. Like, he keeps hearing, like, that... Almost like in Jumanji, where, like, the game calls out to the kids uh, <laughs> in that, like, tribal song. Like, he keeps hearing that seductive, like tune playing again he gets kind of drawn back into the telescope and then he becomes so obsessed with her that he starts like following her around outside the apartment and he's not good at it he like is always like way too close to her that was like some of the funniest moments in the movie where he's following her around the mall and he's literally like two feet from her and she just is apparently clueless and he like steals her underwear and stashes it in his like pants and stuff and watches her like change through a window, but she just so happens to, like, leave the dressing room door ajar so he can catch a peek. And the sales associate is, like, Calling watching him cops. do this, <laughs> and the cops come, and it's like... 
Dude, you're bad at being a peeping Tom. And he has a fellow stalker who's doing the exact same thing. And it's like this guy in prosthetic makeup. He looks like a fucking ghoul. He's really terrifying. Yeah, he looks like Dan Aykroyd in Nothing But Trouble. Like, it's like the ugliest image. And they keep calling him an Indian. Like, whenever he describes yeah, the that's fellow kinda stalker. Yeah, ra- that's kind of racist because he doesn't... I don't get where they got that from. Look like an Indian necessarily. It's yeah. just weird. Under the guise of this other guy following her, he can like say, oh, I was concerned that you had a stalker. When really he's doing the exact same thing as this mm-hmm. uh, guy with the prosthetic makeup on. This like human ghoul. I guess it's not that much of a spoiler to say that that ends in like a bloody death about halfway through the film. Uh, it reminds me of like Psycho. Another Hitchcock reference where, like, you're expecting this one storyline of him stalking this woman to uh, continue throughout the entire film. But instead, she's, like, violently murdered with this, like, giant drill that looks like the drill from Slumber Party Massacre. This giant, like, phallic, industrial-sized drill. Yeah, there's a great scene where he's standing above her and the drill is, like, in between his legs. And it's so obvious the phallic symbolism going on there. And then once that happens... You're like, oh, well, where's this movie going to go now? I don't really understand. And he watches a porno with Melanie Griffith in it doing the exact same dance that the uh, woman used to do for the window before she was killed. And that sort of opens up this whole other world of, like, intrigue. And he has to, like, solve the murder and, like, solve, like, what's happening. What's going on. Yeah. And that's really where it gets interesting. Yeah. I had no idea where the second half was going. And I guess it would be, like criminal to reveal anything more than from that point on up until that point it pretty much goes where you think it's going to go but yeah like you said you're kind of expecting that storyline to draw out the whole movie and then it, when it happens so abruptly you as a viewer are kind of like all right well what's what's next and that's where that's the fun of body double i suppose that's like a direct like vivian lee and psycho reference right this almost seems like his homage to like hitchcock brian de palma's entire career is like a hitchcock Hitch- homage. right but this like more blatantly than yeah anything else he's done yeah the vertigo scenes in the claustrophobia uh freakouts are pretty clear like he does that i don't know the exact term but like where the that hallway effect where like things just sort of drift away in the background and you get kind of dizzy watching it um, yeah. except that it's lateral instead of like looking at heights you're just kind of like these like tunnels start expanding or like he'll be stuck in an elevator and he'll get like claustrophobic yeah and then rear window for obvious reasons with the peeping tom and it's almost like he's breaking down his career into these two halves like yes i'm doing these like hitchcock homages but i also have this like sleazy 80s thing that's like entirely new um and he's like sort of breaking that in half so you can see like the two sides of what he does in his films yeah it is interesting to like place this movie in his filmography because it does seem like a nice sort of midway point like you said like maybe early in his career he was still holding on to like that hitchcock style and this seems kind of his way of opening up new forms of expression kind of do you enjoy like the first half or the second half more than the other like the 80s half versus the like old hollywood noir half even though i thought the second half was more interesting like from a storytelling standpoint the first half i thought was actually more entertaining for me like the scenes of him like following her like around the mall and like yeah the indian guy like chasing him around and both of them stalking her at the same time that to me was the most entertained i was during the movie but the second half i was more engaged like oh okay now i'm actually intrigued by this story but i think ultimately the reason i like the first half 
more is that the ending didn't quite satisfy. Like, it didn't answer the questions I wanted it to, because the ending is pretty vague. Well, Freakin' and De Palma both came up in, like, the New Hollywood era, and one of, like, the staples of that, like, crop of directors was the idea of the letdown ending. Not necessarily right. always like this, where it just sort of, like, cuts off and the story just ends abruptly, but more, like grim, unsatisfying endings as opposed to, like, the typical old Hollywood ending, which is usually, like, a big romantic kiss or, like, mm-hmm. some, something kind of working out in a good way. I don't mind the the grim. I actually, like, every time I would blow out, like, I think that's a great ending. Oh, yeah, fantastic. You know, and he's like, I finally got the scream, whatever. But this one, I don't, I don't care for the just story over and it's kind of vague and up to you to figure it out or have your own interpretation. It's sort of like, well, you're the filmmaker. You made this piece of art. I mean, I kind of want some closure at least. Well, and then he like backtracks and brings it all the way back to the vampire movie in the beginning in a way that like completely disrupts the sort of open-endedness of the conclusion. It's just weird. Like, I don't really understand what he was going for. And I think that's kind of mostly the problem is like, I don't know what the intent was, so I can't say whether he did it well <laughs> right. like i don't know what the effect was supposed to be I, I it definitely warrants a second viewing like keeping that ending in mind but i have a feeling that you're not going to get yeah, there's no solid answer but so that to me is kind of the film's weakest point i mean it's by no means like the worst De palma film oh no i i just watched mission to mars the other day and that was like pure that's fucking a bad garbage. one yeah no i would place this like solidly like in the middle, kind of, it's not one of his great works, but it's not a bad one either. And I think like there's moments in it that are great, and it's got the Frankie goes to Hollywood like music video. Yeah, right that's a middle. really good like psychotic break in the middle of the film is just jumping into this music video. I don't know if you've ever seen the actual quote unquote like band music video for Relax, but it looks like Friedkin's cruising as a music video. Oh wow! Uh, it's definitely worth looking up. Nineteen fifty-four, the consortium of bankers, industrialists, corporate CEOs, and politicians held a series of meetings over three days at the Bilderberg Hotel in Oosterbeek-Holland. They drew up a plan for maintaining the status quo. It's the way things are. It's the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. They devised a plan to manipulate technology, economics, the media, population control, world religion to keep things the way they are. And they have continued to meet once a year, every year since the original meeting. Look it up. Under their orders, the CIA had smuggled Nazi scientists into the States to work with the American military at Kalsman, developing an Epidermal tracking microchip. What? It's a surveillance tool. It's a computer chip that has been implanted in the skin of every human being born on the planet oh since God. 1982. The test group for the prototype was the People's Temple. So I was listening to a friendly podcast by the name of That's Your Opinion. Some internet buddies of mine from Chicago. Uh, talk about like new movies on a weekly basis but they also have a recommendation segment and one of the co-hosts Reed Lubin just watched Killer Joe for the first time and said that it was the only freaking movie he had seen and I had this like sudden urge to recommend like 10 films to him because like William Freakin has 
at least 10 like solid movies to his name and it's really hard not to like over recommend stuff to people um so instead i promised that we would do a top five freaking films episode for this podcast joining me and james today is our buddy joey laura hello joey is a filmmaker sure. and also a cheesemeister <laughs> <laughs> that works. Is that, is that a good enough yeah, uh, sure. summation? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Right. I used to go to um, college with Joey. We used to do, take English classes together at UNO. And we used to be neighbors. So, yeah. yeah. Still basically are. Yeah. Close enough. So the three of us, uh, me, Joey, and James, all kind of pulled together and just sort of like came up with a solid top five freaking movies. The fifth one on the list at the uh, bottom of the best, would be Sorcerer from 1977. This is a quote-unquote remake of Wages of Fear from the 50s. Um, Freakin claims he actually never saw Wages of Fear and only read the book, but he also is kind of a blowhard and would like kind of claim stuff like that in general. I actually hadn't seen this since uh, his memoir came out a few years ago. It's called The Freakin Connection. And I read the entire book and then watched the movies after the fact. This one has a troubled history to it, uh, it's his follow-up to The Exorcist, so he's pretty much on top of the world, should have been able to make a ton of money, and spent all of it filming this like grand epic in South America on location, and with four other locations all across the world, filming this thriller about transporting dynamite, I think over a 20-mile stretch, to put out an oil well fire. The movie starts with these four criminals that you meet in different corners of the world. I believe in Mexico, Jerusalem, Paris, and then New Jersey. And they're all thieves and terrorists and, like, just terrible people. And then you watch them sort of get forced on the run to this, like, shithole town in the middle of South America where they work for an oil company. The oil company doesn't take care of its workers and is sort of reviled by the local people. And once the well catches on fire it's basically this giant fucking flamethrower like shooting this like tower of flame into the sky these four guys volunteer because they're the only ones who will volunteer to transport this leaky dynamite that has this like dangerous nitroglycerin leak uh that if you shake it too much it'll explode and they have to put it in these giant trucks uh sort of padded by sawdust to bring it to the sight of the fire to put it out because that's the only way to put it out is just like basically explode the dirt around it james what is your like overall experience with sorcerer watching it again with you recently i realized how bloated and like just expensive the movie like looks in the sense that like they're just blowing shit up constantly and you could tell just burning through a lot of money and you could tell like i guess after exorcist the studio was like here here's a bunch of money to make the film you want and he definitely spent every single penny of it i also watching it again found it to be like pretty humorless it's like very exciting and a great thriller but it's not necessarily like fun in that way like there's no really humor to cut through the seriousness and like you said like all the characters are pretty awful yeah they're people. scumbags yeah the main quote-unquote hero i guess the protagonist is roy scheider from jaws mm-hmm. and you're introduced to him basically robbing a church of their like bingo money <laughs> yeah and he kills a priest that also happens to be a mob boss's brother and that's why he's like on the run from new jersey and yeah that scene goes into like this expensive car wreck where like a fire hydrant gets exploded and like the car there's dead bodies everywhere bursts into flames yeah. but if you think about it like why are we rooting for this guy he's a total fucking scumbag like yeah i had that dilemma through the whole movie it's like i kind of want this <laughs> truck to explode like these are bad dudes but I don't know, like, not to, to shit talk it, though, that's just the thing that immediately 
jumped out to me because the first time I watched it, I was sort of took that as like a positive, like, oh, look at this epic. This is on such a grand scale. But having seen Wages of Fear, it's kind of like you could have told this story in a more succinct way and not done all this unnecessary explosions and whatnot. It just seemed kind of bloated, but still still a great film. It's It's been a while since I read the memoir, but I'm wondering like how they got the shot of the oil well fire. Like, did they pay it a company to set like, a well on fire? Yeah, that's what it seems like to me. Yeah. Which I don't know how much money that costs. It's the most but... expensive way we can do this. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. And it's like... I mean, it's not like you would stumble upon an open oil well fire, like, oh, we're going to film that from the helicopter and stuff. Like, it would have to be, like, planned in some way. I don't know. I mean, it's amazing to look at in the <laughs> film, but yeah, it seems a little, like, overkill. Yeah. I don't know. And since audiences were expecting a horror film after The Exorcist, and this one's titled Sorcerer, I, I guess the advertising <laughs> sort of played up, like, from the director of, like, the scariest film of all time. People were just completely, like, baffled by this and, like, hated it when it hit the theaters in 77. Roger Ebert put it on his top ten list. Oh, really? That year. Yeah. That's awesome. I think it was, like, like number five or number seven. But it definitely was, like, a box office uh, yeah. flop. Yeah. I don't think it, it really had a resurgence till like, a few years ago. They had, like, a... Um, a restoration of it on Blu-ray. Like, I think that's when people started, like, paying more attention to it. I think it has a lot to do, too, with, like, Wages of Fear is considered an all-time classic. And hearing you say, like, he claims he never saw that original film, honestly, I kind of believe it, having seen Sorcerer, because it's a totally different way to tackle the same story. Well, they were also such European film nerds, all those guys. You yeah. know, the Coppolas. And the, I would be really surprised, because he knew his Kurosawa. He knew his, you know, Fritz right. Lang. Yeah. Those uh, two cultures kind of, like, feed into each other, though. Like, the European stuff was, like, very influenced by American directors. Right. Yeah. And then it kind of went back over the other way around. For sure. It's kind of weird how, like, this movie's set up, too. I, I doubt Wages of Fear is this way, where, like... The first hour or so is getting to know these four characters and their background story. And then, like, the second half of the film is them transporting the dynamite. If I remember correctly, it's weighted a little more on the transporting dynamite side, less on the introductory stuff to the characters. But I don't think the transportation of the dynamite is, like, actually more interesting than the backstory. I don't know. Like In the case of Sorcerer, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I kind of like the backstory stuff because, like, at the beginning of the movie, you're just thrown in there. You don't really know what you're getting into. You're like, oh, there's a terrorist attack with this guy. And, oh, now this guy's robbing a church. This guy uh, is, like, in debt for a bunch of money. What are all these people, like, doing their stories? How are they going to connect? So that that's kind of, like, exciting to see, like, how their stories finally merge. But, yeah, once they're on the truck with the dynamite, I mean, I thought that was, like, exciting. It's exciting. It's, like, a series of obstacles. Like, they have to cross that bridge. is like, a really big obstacle. Um, and then there's the giant tree they have to explode out of their path. Any, like, one second can go wrong. Like, if you catch a flat tire, your truck explodes. So there is, like, stakes. And I guess getting to know the the thieves and the criminals in the first half, like, makes that more substantial. I think it would have helped if you could have, like, rooted for the characters a little bit more. And that's how I was talking about with the humor. Like, it doesn't have to be humor necessarily, but some way to, like, humanize them. You want to root for them to, like, 
get across the bridge or like whatever the next obstacle. But when there's been no effort to make them likable in any way, it's kind of like... Well, there's, there is that yeah. line in the first half where there's like this banker who gets in trouble for fraud in like a Paris. I mean, I'm guessing his backstory. We don't actually get a lot of information on that. But he's talking to his wife, who's a publisher. Uh, he's talking about publishing this book about a, like a crooked soldier. And the guy calls him like, oh, he's just another soldier. And then she says, no one is just anything. That's like, true. No That's... one is just a thief. No one is just a terrorist. No one's just like a banking criminal. Yeah. That might be the best line in the whole movie, actually, <laughs> now that I think about it. I, I will say the score is something that stood out. Yeah, Tangerine Dream, sort of like proto punk new wave act from like the 70s. Yeah. Really like crazy synth score in this movie. Uh, there's this one shot early on when um, the four men are basically building the trucks they're going to transport the dynamite with uh, and you get to see like the final product of the truck emerging and it's backlit and the synths get very heavy and it feels like Frankenstein's monster being born or something. Like mm-hmm. there's something like weird about these like giant like machine monsters like emerging with this like horror music i think that's like one of the movie's strongest points as well and the reason i think it kind of cracked the top five is just from a technical standpoint it is gorgeous and there's a lot of really exciting shots and like that central premise is an exciting one too it is like definitely one of his best but i can't put it at the very top for kind of the reasons we laid out well, I have to ask you, like, you're saying that he's not, there's not a lot of humor in this film, but do you think in his career in general that there's a lot of humor? Because I think outside maybe the two Tracy Letts plays and the Harold Pinter play, The Birthday Party. Right. I don't, I don't think that the projects he chooses are really geared for humor. Actually, that's a good point. And I guess some of my favorites are the ones based on plays, but that has a lot to do with the playwrights. Right. Yeah. You know, so that's like more like the script and the dialogue. Because his comedies don't really work uh, yeah, for de- me. Deal of the Century is like this arms deal comedy that is like fucking garbage. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's one of the worst movies I've ever sat through. Maybe that was never his intent. Well, that's a good point. That's probably a good transition into our number four pick, which was Killer Joe from 2012. In the opening, such a funny movie. Yeah, <laughs> I think it is funny. It is, it is funny. funny. It yeah. is funny in a really fucked up way. <laughs> well, it's uh, an adaptation of a Tracy Let's Play, the second of two of those. In the title card for Freakin's director credit, it says William Freakin's film of Tracy Let's Killer Joe. <laughs> so like he like emphasizes the fact that, that he's like trying to bring this like already finished product that he appreciates to life. You know, this is also an early sign of the McConaissance. So you have like Matthew McConaughey coming in and sort of reworking his career from like romantic comedy, romantic comedy bro into yeah. like this like dark figure. He's up for an Independent Spirit Award for this. Oh, really? Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so this one is a nasty noir set in like a trailer park, and it's this family hires McConaughey as like this crooked cop to kill their like mother figure. What's your experience with this movie, Joey? I always have my doubts about this movie, so I never saw it until you recommended it for this podcast. And so some of the things that I had assumed about it were totally flipped upside down. And it wasn't nearly as nasty as I thought it was going to be. For an NC-17 film, I've seen some gross shit. This was actually... I thought it was totally doable. The sexual violence in the finale is really fucking rough. Um, It's not a traditional rape scene, but it is a rape scene. And it's very uncomfortable. I mean, it's one of those (laughs) techniques, right, where... You're not showing the actual thing so you can get away with it. Right. But it still has all the weight of uh, embarrassment and shame. And This was a very uncomfortable trip to the theater in 2012. <laughs> and then, like, watching it again by myself the other night was no better. Like, it was just, <laughs> just 
So you you had already previously been a fan of the film Bug, though. Like, how does this fit in with that movie for you? So it's it's weird the order of things because Bug is actually Tracy Letts' second play. Mm-hmm. Killer Joe is his first. So the fact that Bug came first sets up some different expectations. I think Bug is more grueling and it's more claustrophobic. And I would love to see how Killer Joe plays out on stage without all those exteriors. I'm assuming there's no exteriors. I'm assuming it all takes place in the trailer. And it's wicked funny because there's some points you just have to laugh at. I want to know your thoughts on this. Roger Ebert in his review, Killer Joe said, this is the stupidest family I've ever seen outside (laughs) of a comedy. Do you think freaking gets off on the fact that they're that stupid or do you think that's just an accepted part of the narrative so that's something i kind of struggle with watching it again there's definitely a little bit of a classist thing going on you have these like you know like rich liberals like writing stories about the dumb white trash in the trailer park and like writing them be really 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 stupid and that kind of like left a bad taste in my mouth it's like because it seemed like they were kind of making fun these people, like, it, it wasn't, like, celebrating them in any way. It was, like, literally just writing them as the most base, stupid people you could imagine. But I don't know. I don't know what Tracy Letts, like, intent really was with this. But it is, I mean, it is funny and it's dark and, like, a, still a great play, a great film. But I, I was kind of struggling with, like, that classist kind of vibe going on. The, the way I read it is like a sitcom setup. So you have like all these characters with like one trait. Like you have Emil Hirsch mm-hmm. once. Yeah, exactly. Like Emil Hirsch is this like idiot who brings Killer Joe into the family to kill his mother to collect her insurance money. And basically greed is like his only trait. Like he always wants stuff for himself with like no consequence. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like the downfall of the whole family. The dad is like the funniest character to me. Oh, uh, he's because he's just aloof and yeah. like doesn't really care what's going on. In the final sequence when Killer Joe is basically like destroying the family one by one. Uh, he keeps asking the dad questions. He'll be like, what do you think? And the dad will be like, I don't. Uh, some other ones um she's very beautiful right i haven't given it much thought (laughs) were you aware of this i'm never aware like he's just a complete blank slate with like no courage and no like thought like he's just empty and I, i think that there's like a kind of philosophical humor to that um and i guess the even more discomforting one though is Dottie, who is uh this like younger sister character who's played as like a bargaining chip and you're never quite sure if she's supposed to be like an idiot or a genius, like mm-hmm. she, she's pretty knowing, she she's, knows what's going on. Yeah, she's the most perceptive one of the bunch, but she also acts like this kind of like woman child. And I don't know how self aware that is. Like you'll see her like kind of spinning around and like staring at the sky like a fucking three year old would. But then um, she'll like stumble in mid conversation, be like, "Are y'all talking about killing Mama? I think that's a good idea." Like she's like sharp in like really unexpected ways. Well, is that her own bargaining chip? Is that like how she gets what she needs? Yeah, I think by the end it's. That's pretty clear, because I think, she's, that she's running the show, really. She's the only one who doesn't demand anything, for the most part. She accepts everything until she finally makes her choice of stabbing him in the back, literally <laughs> and figuratively. I don't know, the scene like where her and Killer Joe first sleep with each other, Like I can't tell if that's a seduction scene or a rape scene. Like he's like giving her these commands and she's going along with them, and we have no information about like her intelligence level at all. Like we're mm-hmm. just kind of guessing. That I think that's an intentional discomfort, but I still don't know how to read it after <laughs> seeing it twice. Like no, me neither. Yeah, <laughs> I do like the long monologue where Joe um, tells her a story 
over their like quote unquote date about this guy he knew who set his own genitals on fire. Yeah. And I then at that. the end of the story, she goes, Is he okay? <laughs> and no. he's like, No, he set his own genitals on fire. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's kind of like a weird sitcom to me. Like the scene where Joe sort of beats them all into submission at the end for not paying him for his services, he makes them sit down for like a family dinner. In this like sort of like nuclear family setting, he's like, "Papa has to sit at the f- head of the table. I'm going to ask for your daughter's hand in marriage." In this like traditional family sense, you might be right that Let's is sort of making fun of like the intelligence of like poor Southerners. I think he's mostly making fun of the American family unit as this right. like picture perfect Norman Rockwell kind of thing. Yeah, and like basically subverting the idea of like a sitcom because, like you said, all sitcoms have those archetypes, but just like breaking them down to their most base level and then like you're setting it in a trailer park which is like as far down the economic ladders like you could go kind of just taking it to like its most base pure form pre-genius well the upper and middle classes are the ones that are constrained to the nuclear family unit the lower classes don't give a shit because they don't care if they appear to be lower class by not sticking to it and joe's two weapons at the end of the film aren't a gun or a knife it's a fried chicken leg, and it's a can of pumpkin a filling. Pumpkin filling, yeah. pumpkin pie filling. Um, <laughs> That's true. It's Americana. Yeah, mm-hmm. like low, lower rung Americana is what he beats the, this family into submission with. That's a good point. I at the end of the day, like what really anchors this film is McConaughey's performance. He chews up the scenery in this movie like no one I've really seen before. Like it's really a great performance. I loved him in this movie. And uh, Gina Gershon, who we haven't mentioned yet, yeah. plays like the sort of stepmom character. Mm-hmm. And there's that really fucking brutal scene at the end where she, like McConaughey rapes her mouth with a fried chicken leg for an extended period of time, and it's very fucking hard to watch. But like the way she handles that moment, and then after the fact, like basically has like instant PTSD and is still forced to like linger in the situation and sit down for that family dinner where they're like, oh, can I please pass the mashed potatoes and stuff like that? And she has to like sort of dwell in it, um, even though she just like suffered probably the most horrific thing that'll ever happen to her. Uh, I think she does a fucking fantastic job as well. I, like most of us in our late 20s, early 30s, you know, totally loved Gina Gershon growing up on Bound and Showgirls. It was really hard to have a crush on Gina Gershon in this movie. <laughs> yeah, she plays a very nasty character. Like, yeah. she's pure evil. Uh, <laughs> Especially by the end. Again, like, we're finding out some people are a little more knowledgeable than we realize. I mean, she she passed the on... women. They're yeah, the yeah, they're, like, the sort strings. of engineering things behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, she passed on doing the stage play version of this so she didn't have to do that chicken scene like eight days a week yeah <laughs> uh so when the movie came up she was like oh i yeah i'll do it once but i'm not gonna do that like every night of my life i, I think with this movie too like the way it's written you have to take it to like the max like if you're a, an actor in this like you can't half-ass it like you gotta just push yourself the material kind of calls for that and they all do a really good job of taking it to the next level and it's a very thin line between like brutality and humor the, the tagline for the movie is um a total twisted deep fried texas redneck trailer park murder story <laughs> which sort of like points to like how excessive everything in the film is uh, and then you get these scenes of like emile hirsch who deserves everything that comes to him for like engineering this entire like fucked up mess getting his face beaten into like clance carter's stroking it's not like movie violence where it's like easy to like sort of brush it off you're like feeling the blow of every hit to his face. He gets kicked in the face by these heavy boots over yeah. and over again. And then it's like, stroking! <laughs> uh, and the movie ends on the same note. So yeah, they're like playing with 
almost insufferable levels of brutality and humor at the same time. And it's like really a weird mix and it's very uncomfortable. One thing I wanted to bring up with this movie is I thought it felt like the work of like a young filmmaker. Like he was probably what, like 70 when he made Killer Joe? Like imagining a 70 year old man like making this kind of movie just blows my mind because it really feels like the work of like someone's first film, you know what I mean? Like a really cutting edge filmmaker, but this is at the end of his career and it feels like he has this like kind of renaissance. It's really of. funny watching like behind the scenes stuff of him on it because he has like this like high waist pants <laughs> uh, and he wears these big sweaters and kind of the glasses I'm wearing now, like wireframe aviators. And he's like this old grandpa looking dude just sort of like walking around on this trailer park set. You're like, where is this coming from? Like, <laughs> That's what I was wondering. Same thing with Bug, too. It's like, you waited till the end of your career to make the most like fucked up movies you could. At this point, Killer Joe might very well be his last film. He's already said like he's tired of trying to get funding for stuff. I think John Waters is having the same problem right now, where like, it's hard to secure funding for a mid-budget film, and he's just like tired of fighting for it. Uh, he said he might do television, but he might just be done with features. And if that's the truth, like, if Killer Joe's, like, the last movie of his career, like, what a way to go out. Like, seriously, yeah. It's, it's definitely more like a swan song than, like, a quiet whisper. Like, but I do think that that nihilism and that brutality, like, fits into his career as a whole. Like, his movies aren't usually fun. They all end on a sour note. They all, like, have this sort of, like, darkness to them. Or at least the good ones do. But it's sort of like he's kind of learned to edit a little bit more. Like, his later films feel much more, like, cohesive... And, like, Sorcerer, you know, feels, like I was saying, like, sort of bloated. And this feels just like every shot is, like, necessary and perfect. And you could tell he's, like, a master filmmaker that's just, like, learned this over time. Yeah. The next film on the list is our number three pick from 1980. Uh, It's the film Cruising. This, I think, personally, is Freakin's masterpiece. It's a very dark slasher film, almost like a grimy giallo set in S&M gay clubs in 1980s New York. This movie has always had a controversial reputation. Even before it started filming, people were lashing back at it for the way it represented gay culture and media. Because at the time, in 1980, there wasn't really a lot of mainstream films that were set in gay subcultures. So there was sort of like an impetus to like normalize it for most people because people were tired of being like made to be like outsiders. Right. And it's showing this like niche part of that culture, making it seem like a bigger phenomenon than it actually is. Yeah. I mean, the movie does kind of go out of its way several times to mention like this is a heavy leather scene. These jockstrap clubs where people like wear leather like collars and like piss play in bathtubs and like fist each other like in public that is like a very small niche but it does exist it's not like he was exaggerating something that didn't exist he was basically documenting this very specific subset of people in the kink scene in new york city and since this film has been released basically new york city's been cleaned up at least by the time giuliani came in and completely like cleared out all the porno theaters in Times Square and all these clubs have sort of dissipated. Um, Also, AIDS wiped out a lot of this subculture as well. Since then, we've also gotten all of these movies that are sort of like these sexless, like, tragedies from, like, gay perspectives where these kind of, like, Oscar-bait dramas about, like, how hard it is to be gay in the world and all this stuff. And it's almost 
come to feel like this exceptional example of queer cinema in the way that it documented a scene that no longer exists and the way it's like fiercely sexual and is like unapologetically queer in a way that I feel like a lot of like mainstream queer cinema isn't. I don't think there's ever a suggestion that it's a boring activity that's happening. It's just not his style. It's not, it's not his jam. And, um, yeah, you know, and you know who actually loves this film is, you may or may not be surprised, is Armand White. Because he's not really into the nihilism of Friedkin's other work, but he praised this film over and over again for, yeah, the celebration of queerness and actually showing what that subset is like. It's always weird to agree with Armand White on something. So I was like, (laughs) I like him. So, you know what it kind of reminds me of? The episode we did on Paris is Burning and Kiki. It's sort of that difference. Like later queer films, it's kind of like a message film whereas like this is just betraying a subculture that actually existed in the same way where like paris is burning how it shows the actual culture for what it is and then later on kiki felt more like a political message film and that's something i really like about this movie it feels really authentic it's really just like a good thriller i think it's one of pacino's best performances I think it is coming from a genuine place of interest, too. Like, mm-hmm. um, earlier in his career, Freakin also did a film called The Boys in the Band, which is one of his better, like, stage play adaptations, I think. Um, and that one also has the same kind of backlash for being, like, a negative portrayal of gay lifestyle. But they're characters that actually exist. If you think about his straight characters in his other films, like, he usually doesn't portray people who are, like, having a good time in life. Like, he, his movies usually have this, like, sour things are going to shit way about them anyway. Um, so I don't know if he could tell like a happy-go-lucky story in like a queer subculture and have it be like worthwhile. Yeah, it wouldn't be a Friedkin movie if... If Killer Joe is full of straight people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Also, the real-life killer that this movie's based off of was a person who had a small role as a radiologist in The Exorcist. Uh, so he was like a background character in wow. the movie, was the real-life killer. And they called him the trash bag killer because he would go to these gay clubs pick up men, have sex with them, and then chop them up and throw them in the river in trash bags. So Freakin visited this guy in jail after he was convicted and sort of became like fascinated with the story from a personal standpoint just because like he was so close to the crime. And then made a point to film in these like real-life locations, like the actual BDSM clubs where the, the people were cruised before they were murdered. Also, the public cruising spots in the park where men would have anonymous sex. He also filmed, like, real-life body parts in In the morgue scenes. scenes. It's easy to see how someone would find this to be, like, an exploitative film, but I feel like it's coming from a genuine place of, like, personal interest. Like, I think he, like, just found this scene fascinating and would, like, as a very specific backdrop for a slasher film. Yeah, when you say exploitative and then the word slasher, I mean, to me, as a thriller it kind of feels like a maniac cop it feels cheap i think what elevates it is seeing what lies beneath and the flirtation of how this is seeping into his relationship is really fascinating yeah yeah. that lovely last shot of her dressing up in the costume before he can tell her what happened i love the ambiguity of the ending ultimate queerness if they actually introduce some of those kinks into their own relationship Well, I guess we should get into the plot at this point. Um, Al Pacino is a young cop who has to go undercover to investigate the murders in these, like, queer clubs. The movie's title is a double entendre for police cruisers and, like, cruising men. As he gets further into the subculture, where he gets closer and closer to the killer, he starts to have more fun with it. He, like, will do poppers and then go dancing with all these men and, like... (laughs) 
gets very excited on the dance floor and you can like see him like having a good time for like the only 30 second stretch of the film um he also becomes sort of oddly infatuated with his neighbor who's like not part of this bdsm culture he's just like this regular gay playwright who happens to live in the same apartment that he's undercover in and the movie's not really a murder mystery like we know who the killer is like visually pretty early on it's more just like watching him close in on the killer and sort of lose himself in this subculture at the same time and then like you said that sort of messes up his personal relationship with Karen Allen, uh, who is either his wife or his girlfriend. We don't really know the details yeah. there. The only shot I would say that I think sort of plays into how people view this as a homophobic film is during the first killing, the killer is stabbing a victim in the back with a knife. And there's one insert shot of a like penis going into an asshole. <laughs> um, it's like this one hardcore gay porn shot sort of inserted into that. It's almost like an x-ray image of it, right? If yeah. If I remember correctly? Yeah. Yeah, it's like a really cheap-looking, like, image. Yeah. Um, and it made me feel really uneasy, and I, I guess that's the point of it, is to make you feel uncomfortable. It's supposed to be, like, in the killer's psychosis. I, I think in freaking movies, a lot of times, you'll see insert shots of, like, later in Bug, like, Bugs. Also in Sorcerer, when Roy Scheider's losing his mind uh, towards the end of his dynamite transport, there's, like, these insert shots of, like his past and like weird landscapes and stuff and it's supposed to be like mania and i guess that shot of the hardcore porn is supposed to be what's going on in the killer's head but i could see how that is like a very uncomfortable shot well part of the violence isn't just that uh he is actually raping him at the same time as they say during the morgue scene so it is like a letting you know that there's two types of violence happening yeah and the exorcist too there's a lot of flash imagery isn't there yeah yeah yeah. and he, he whispers to the guy like you made me do that uh, which is like he really says it to a few up. of the victims. It's really fucked up. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm not gonna say this movie's not fucked up, but like, overall though, just like the specificity of the setting and like the real life story behind it and the documentation of this scene is like very powerful for me. Like, every time I watch it, I love it even more. And a lot like Inside, that uh, French horror film. I haven't seen that, but James has. I fucking love. I love that movie. Um, yeah. One of the things I loved about it is that as a woman who's afraid of childbirth because it represents this death that happens earlier in the film every single murder happens through penetration yeah and the same thing happens with cruising i think it's no mistake that everyone is stabbed that's true i mean this was the one movie on our list that watching it a second time like after i made the list i would have moved it up i think for me it was like maybe number six or seven but after watching it a second time i'd put it in the top three and the initial reason i wasn't really high on it was the ambiguity of Pacino's character like is he actually like bisexual or did he actually kill his neighbor it leaves it all open-ended and that bothers me sometimes but then watching it again recently it's like no that's like the point is like he doesn't know he's going into these like feelings he didn't really know he had and it's still kind of ambiguous to him too and so that's something that didn't really click until second viewing so that made me like the film even more the something i paid attention to this time because i wanted to do this for a movie the month thing last year and the month i had picked for it was like it ended up happening to be like right after the pulse nightclub massacre and i was like i cannot watch this film right now like it would have just completely fucked me up so i ended up delaying it i'm glad i took a year off um but something i wanted to pay attention to was 
how people could view it as like a homophobic screed against like exploiting queer sexuality in like a grotesque way. Mm -hmm. And what I found this time that I did not pay attention to as much the first time was like how much the movie actually vilifies these cops who aren't paying attention to these trans women on the scene who are like, Paul Sorvino plays like the head uh, police chief and these trans women will come up to him and be like, look, I'll inform on these different killings in the scene. I'll help you find the killer. But you have to tell your like patrol officers to stop like harassing and raping us. The movie sort of like vilifies Paul Sorvino for not paying attention to these people who are like crying out for help. And like the cops are like the bigger bastards in the way they're portrayed. That, that just surprised me more this time around how like the movie actually goes out of its way to like separate this culture from like quote unquote normal gay society and then goes even further to like talk about how the cops are like underserving them and like so disregarding their needs. What year w- was this movie made? 1980. Something I kept thinking about was like with kind of the AIDS crisis. I think that came after this. Right, and that that's like what I was saying. I was like, because it feels like it's almost a statement on that, like the killer represents AIDS or like... Um, but then I was like, no, this like came before, so that doesn't really factor It at least would have been it. early, and it's based on a novel that came out like a few years even earlier than that. I think maybe the inspiration was mostly the trashback killer. Yeah. I think he just saw it as like a super specific scene to set a slasher or like a Jalo film in. And there's a lot of uh, images that keep popping up of the American flag. I never knew really how to contextualize that. I mean, any time that they needed to fill space, like an empty space, there's an American flag hanging out. And when he's tripping on either poppers or ether, those flashing images of like an American flag in the background. I mean, I keep calling this like a sort of makeshift Jalo film, but I feel like it is like fiercely American. It's very New York. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a grimy New York that doesn't exist any longer, which makes it even more interesting. Right. So number two on our list was actually my second favorite movie personally on here as well. Uh, This is To Live and Die in L.A. Uh, This is sort of like a fiercely 80s update to one of Freakin's flagship films, the French Connection. Instead of following like heroin deals across the Atlantic Ocean, it's set in the counterfeiting uh, culture in LA in the 80s. Um, you basically watch Willem Dafoe, who's like this like weird artsy type, counterfeit money, and then these cops have to chase him down. And much like the French Connection, there's like these long chase sequences. Um, it gets very into the verisimilitude of what counterfeiting looks like, the way that French Connection has a lot of like scenes of actual heroin being prepared and used. Also, the movie is very much focused on the idea that the cops are, like, no better than the criminals. The thing that excites me a lot about this film is just how fiercely 80s it feels. There's a title card that says music by Wang Chung in the opening credits, (laughs) and it's over a shot of, like, $20 bills being counted, and it's, like, the most 80s single frame of cinema I could, <laughs> could name off the top of my head. The movie also has all these like cliches of like an older partner getting killed uh, two days before retirement. <laughs> There's these lines like, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. He's more than my partner. He was my friend. <laughs> he got too close. So the movie like deals in these like sort of like cop film cliches that freaking actually like kicked into gear when he did The French Connection. But I think there's just something about this movie's aesthetic that speaks more to me directly. Just the idea of the Wang Chung 80s pop music and like Willem Dafoe being on like the avant-garde art scene, like setting paintings on fire and dating this like interpretive dancer and stuff uh, that I find just like more personally exciting because I grew up on like 80s cinema. How do y'all feel about To Live and Die in LA? I love it. I actually agree. I think it might be 
the most 80s movie I've ever seen. And that aesthetic has definitely come back into style too. And it's just such an exciting movie. Like it, watching it again, it still feels fresh and cool, you know, for something that was made 30 years ago. I, I loved it. This was definitely in my top three. Yeah, the way you said about it being like working with these stereotypes and in the 80s, it really reminds me of the 90s action Eddie Murphy film Metro. I've never seen that. It's totally like the urban answer to live and die in LA because it's very 90s and it's very uh, archetypal in that way. But it's been a while since I've seen it. I, I haven't seen it in about eight years, but I always enjoyed this. This was I thought this was probably the most fun freaking movie. Because I agree you, with that, too. Like you said, with the verisimilitude of the uh, counterfeiting is fascinating. Like, it digs into a, a culture that there's so much to know about. Yeah, there's a very, like, long sequence of Willem Dafoe operating these machines that, like, take negatives of dollars, and then he, like, exacto knifes out the serial numbers, and then you watch this, like, three-color printing process for him to get, the, like, the exact right green. Kind of like with Cruising, it's a very specific subculture that like you don't really see on the screen often and that novelty can't be under like value and you learn how exacting it is yeah also like going back to like them signifying how 80s everything is in the first (laughs) couple scenes uh one of the first voices we hear is ronald reagan's as he's giving like this big speech and then there's this like really islamophobic scene where like the suicide bomber is sort of stopped in his tracks uh, and then the guy who stops the bomber says, like, I'm getting too old for this shit. Some lethal weapon uh-huh. recursor there. Yeah. And I feel like he, maybe along with lethal, lethal Weapon, those two movies together maybe started a whole subgenre. Like, even Freakin' in the 90s, that movie Jade, which is, like, a really shitty, like, echo of this <laughs> film. I feel like he kicked off this, like, really sleazy cop thriller genre with this movie. Like, it feels like the start of something, even though it is, like, so rooted in its era. Like, when did Miami Vice come out? Miami Vice is just, like, a straight-up rip-off of To Live and Die in L.A. Miami Vice, I think the basic concept of that show was, like, cop show plus MTV. You can't really, like, get more into that aesthetic without trying just by having Wang Chung do your entire soundtrack. (laughs) Uh, I think the thing that really jumped out to me in this viewing, maybe when we were talking about Sorcerer, this came up a little bit, about how you can sympathize with criminals... In this one, and maybe even in the French Connection a little bit, like, the criminals are just cooler than the cops chasing them down. Willem Dafoe has all this, like, kinky sex with his girlfriend, and, like, exists on the art scene, and just dresses cool, and gives no fucks. Like, he'll be under investigation for the counterfeiting, and he'll just walk into a police station and, like, say hello to John Turturro, who was, like, arrested under their nose. Uh, He'll also go and murder a person on his hit list, like, while under police surveillance, but, like, keeping it totally casual and just not caring. (laughs) And on the flip side of that, the cop is this, like, abusive asshole who basically forces this informant into a sexual relationship with him and threatens to send her back to her parole officer if she stops giving him leads. And, I don't know, even though Defoe is, like, a murderer and a thief, like, I just, like, sympathized with him more and kind of wanted to see him get away with it. Yeah, also, uh, watching it recently, like, that stood out to me, like, Willem Defoe is fucking awesome. <laughs> the second thing was, that car chase scene is one of the best car chase scenes ever. Like, Freakin knows how to do a car chase scene right. Like, French Connection to Live and Die in L.A. I don't know what it is, but, like, he's got 
the magic formula. Even in like, Jade, uh, that movie is terrible, uh, but it does have like a really good car chase. Oh, it does I've yeah. never seen Jade before. Neither have I. I wouldn't recommend it, but <laughs> <laughs> I think they go through Chinatown in San Francisco or something, and there's like a parade that the car chase goes through, and it's kind of like this one where it's like a big set piece where like all kinds of people get involved and like they shut down areas of the interstate to like shoot it and it's just like how did you even pull this off it's kind of like sorcerer just like watching him like throw money at the screen in this one the chase scene is after a failed bust they're almost sniped from the interstate uh from these two killers who are working for willem dafoe and they sort of like race past like these trains and 18 wheelers and all these obstacles but every time they stop to get around an obstacle more people get out of cars with uh machine guns like it feels like there's always just some middle-aged guy waiting on the road somewhere that you would think is like just an anonymous LA citizen waiting to shoot guns at them. And the way they get away is they go backwards uh, down the interstate. And it is really thrilling to watch. I also liked how uh, the violence was like super sudden and like brutal in the movie. I guess Killer Joe kind of does that as well. There's no real lead up to the violence. It just sort of happens. Like someone will get shot in the face and it'll be like the bloodiest gaping hole you've ever seen on screen. But there's no like tension building before it like it's more like realistic in the way it just kind of comes out of nowhere it's an immediacy i mean it, it happens in spasms that kind of goes against how violence is typically portrayed it's usually played up for like suspense like you know the violence is coming and then you can build suspense you know as we get to that point but his films like you're talking about with the violence coming out of nowhere it sort of leaves you like on the edge of your seat because you feel like at any moment something brutal could just happen you don't have that suspense to kind of clue you in like to where you know it's going to happen and i guess the suspense is more in like the chasing scenes like that's more of the tension building is those like kind of car chases and like there's a lot of foot chasing in the film early on as well where they're trying to like pinpoint willem dafoe and he's just like a slippery little bastard and gets away (laughs) with it a bunch of times so i'll just go ahead and say now that the french connection is sort of conspicuously missing from this list uh also the exorcist and those are like his two biggest films do y'all have anything specific about this film that, that you think is better than The French Connection? Or do you think that it deserves to be on here and we just didn't serve it correctly? For me, it's just purely the aesthetic of To Live and Die in L.A. is more appealing. French Connection does that really gritty, almost shot like a documentary style, like New York, grimy sort of thing going on. And this is the more flashy kind of aesthetic that's popular now but i think they're both great films for me personally to live and die in la just appeals to my sensibilities that's where i'm at too yeah now that we can sort of trace freaking over decades of what his work kind of has culminated in i think he works best when he has to ramp everything up to 11 and i'm he does it i guess in ways with french connection but i think french connection is like a good thesis film he got some of his shit out got it on a canvas and now he's had the time to figure out exactly how to do what he does. And I think that's why um, I left The Exorcist off the list. Because, yeah. I mean, yeah, in, in ways it's overboard. It's excessive, for sure. But I think in the ways that he just got better and better at it and did it in more sophisticated ways, that's why I left those two off the list. I think for me, those two films as well just don't feel as specific to him. No. Like, The French Connection feels like a new Hollywood upstart, like, trying to, like, make a gritty noir throwback. It feels more like a Scorsese, like an early Scorsese film. And The Exorcist as well feels like a 70s film that pretty much, not that he doesn't have his own personal touch on it, pretty much any director could have made that movie, I think. I do wish he would have gone back to the horror genre 
more well, often. I do like that movie, The Guardian, he made about killer trees. I, I know you do, and I, I hate that. <laughs> I hate that movie. It feels like a basic cable horror film, but like in a great way to me. It's very cheesy, but I, I'll stand by The Guardian. We'll have to debate that one another episode. <laughs> uh, real quick, other movies that we left off this list before we get to our number one. Earlier we referenced The Boys in the Band, which, which is I love. one of his great play yeah. adaptations. Also, The Birthday Party is another one. Uh, it's a Harold Pinter um, adaptation about this like sort of existential crisis. On top of what James was saying about him being like great at doing chase scenes in particular, I think he does a really good job of bringing stage plays to the screen and building tension in confined spaces, but without making the movie feel cheap in the way that like a lot of those stage play things feel like it still feels like a movie but he's using the confined space in a very like interesting way right because he uses things specific to film you know that a stage play couldn't do while still using like the same dialogue and same setup so he makes it cinematic even though it's an adaptation from a play and um also the hunted uh starring benicio del Toro. if you're interested in watching freakin's chase movies that whole movie is basically Tommy Lee Jones chasing him down <laughs> until this like climactic knife fight, which is like so fucking brutal. And I, I feel like it'd be underserving freaking if we didn't throw out the hunted as well as sort of like an underseen gem. That's a that's a really great action movie. Well, our, our number one choice should be pretty obvious at this point. I'm going to count them down though. Uh, at number five, we had Sorcerer. Number four, we had Killer Joe. Number three, Cruising. Two, To Live and Die in L.A. And at number one, we had Bug from 2006. Uh, shot actually in Metairie, uh, I think post Katrina. No, right before Katrina. Right they before. missed Katrina by three days. Wow! I think. Damn. This is another stage play adaptation. Like Joey said earlier, this is the first time he adapted a Tracy Letts play, and this is for me my first introduction to Michael Shannon as a screen presence. He used to collaborate with Tracy Letts regularly in Chicago on the stage, and he originated this role that he plays in this film in Chicago night after night for, like, months, or if not years. And I instantly fell in love with him as a screen presence. Like, everything you love about Michael Shannon being, like, so intensely terrifying that it's, like, oddly funny, like, this movie pretty much bottles that up in, like, a very concise way. You watch him move into a sort of motel room, supposedly in Oklahoma, with Ashley Judd, uh, she is surviving a abusive relationship where she's like physically hurt by Harry Connick Jr., who just sort of like drifts in and out of her life and beats her and leaves and takes advantage of her. He does a really good job of playing a terrifying scumbag. Scumbag, and then uh, Michael Shannon sort of moves in with her as this like stranger ex-soldier who is paranoid about bugs eating his blood, and the paranoia becomes this sort of like virus once they have sex that she is sort of infected with it and starts to believe that she is infected with bugs. And the movie just sort of escalates with them digging the bugs out of their skin, uh, bug-proofing their apartment so that the bugs, which were supposedly engineered by secret government forces, can't transmit information to, like, satellites that might be listening in. And then the entire apartment-slash-motel room is just covered in aluminum foil and lit by these blue bug zappers, and, like, the small-scale drama that you get in the beginning that's just a couple people in a room sort of escalates out of control into this, like, absurd, like, almost looks like a weird spaceship where people are just cut to shit because they're, like, trying to remove egg sacs and invisible insects from their blood. What's y'all's experience with this movie? Holy shit. The, I tried to watch this around the time it came out, and I remember thinking it was just not the kind of film I thought it was going to be. I found it to be slow. I found it not to deal with, like, paranoia the way I expected it to. Mm-hmm. 
And so I didn't finish it. And then watching it again this time, I see what I missed out on. Um, and I see why it works. Um, I remember taking a creative writing class and we were talking about James Joyce. And the professor said he had talked to his his professor when he was in uh, graduate school and said, I really want to do the ending of the dead, which is this like long, beautiful ending that just builds and builds on itself. He said, I want to do that, but in one story. And the professor said, well, you, you can't. You have to build that up. You have to plant all of those seeds, and then you can just do it. And that's the thing. Like, there's no way Tracy Letts could have gotten away, or freaking could have gotten away with any of this by just jam-packing it with how it ends. Yeah, it has to be a gradual escalation for it to work. Because you have to believe, which what I think is the ultimate fear is, how can you be relatively normal or even somewhat susceptible to ending up where Ashley Judd ends up? The common thing the two of them share is that they're like broken, like vulnerable people with like PTSD. Like her from her romantic life and him from being a soldier. And that's the kind of people that usually are susceptible to like being swept up in a cult or like an ideology. Uh, Born again Christians are usually like that as well. Alcoholics with conspiracy theorists, I think, kind of fall into that as well. Yeah, so you can see why they would like be so fiercely attached to each other to like feed into each other's paranoia because that's like the only thing they have anchoring themselves to. Like... They are each other's bug, each other's parasite. But in a way, it is like kind of a nice love story. I mean, it is in the sense that, like, I guess when you love someone, like, their fears and their, in this case, like, delusions kind of become your own. And I think, like you were saying, Brandon, they're both struggling with loss or, like, pain. And instead of thinking of it as the easiest explanation, like, for Michael Shannon, it's just he has a mental disorder. For Ashley Judd, it's just, like, your child went missing. But it's kind of nice to create these grander stories about what happened to you so it's not just you have you know mental disorder something's wrong with your brain it's like no the government is in on this or it's not just your child randomly ran away it's like someone took it and they've been keeping it captive all these years so just i think a lot of people do deal with pain and loss in that way they want to feel like it means something grander than it really does and that's like something i I thought was really striking about this movie is like, it's kind of a love story in a really fucked up way. My experience though, like I know this shot to like our number one, but I think less of it now than I did the first time I saw it. Cause I think that experience of watching them fall in love and like feed on each other and it escalating is such a shock. The first time you see it that like the things I had focused on the first time was like the early signs of like them losing their minds. There's like a telephone ringing and that's like a menace or they're looking for a cricket in the apartment. And that's like kind of a common thing that will drive you nuts. Like if you're ever looking for like a cricket or a frog and you can't find the source of the noise, like the movie's tapping into that exact like paranoia. Like where is the little bastard? The helicopters. Well, yeah. And then the movie starts literalizing their fears where like whether or not it's actually happening, quote unquote, in real life, the apartment is shaking with helicopter lights coming in. Mm-hmm. But what kind of blew my mind this time around watching it again is just how cheap the movie looks. Like, it looks like a dingy mid-2000s horror film in a lot of ways. And there's these early frenetic shots that I just had completely forgotten about of, like, close-ups of blood and bugs uh, sort of, like, assuring the audience, like, oh, don't worry, things will get weird later. Uh, and I think the first shot of the movie, even, is a shot of the ending. 
it opens with an image of the hell that they create for themselves where I much rather would have just gotten there gradually without those like assurances that things were going to get weird. And that's something that freaking brings to the play. Like the play wouldn't have that. That's a good decision he made. And I, I don't know if it necessarily works for the movie's benefit. You're talking about the expressionism that it builds he, up to? Or? Yeah. Like when they have sex for the first time, there's like a transmission of fluids and, um, bugs that are showed almost in like microscopic mm. uh, shots that are supposed to like clue you into like his paranoia sort of like visualizing it for you as an audience and I think it makes literal his fears in a way that's interesting but it also makes the movie feel more conventional than I remembered it being like it feels more of like a conventional 2000s horror than I remembered anyway like I remembered it being like really fucking out there when really the movie sort of like holds your hand a little bit before the action starts that's a good point I still love it though. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think it's, I like that aesthetic about it. Like you're talking about the dingy mid 2000 horror. It, I think it works for this subject matter. I mean, it's taking place in a dingy motel room. So the fact that it looks like kind of cheap and all that, like, sort of works for this plot. As far as like the hand holding thing, I do think that is what was going on because. Audiences probably didn't quite know what they were getting into, and if you left that out at the beginning, it just seems like kind of a mediocre love story until Michael Shannon really starts going off. So I think it is like sort of letting you know, like, no, this is going to get messed up. You just have to stick with it. I get that criticism. I think a lot of my love of this film is purely Michael Shannon. Oh, the performances from him and Judd are like absolutely phenomenal. Same thing with Killer Joe. A lot of the reason it was so high on the list was just that central performance by Matthew McConaughey. I mean, you can tell, too, like, Shannon has played this role so many times. He's, like, it's ingrained in him. It's such a... Fin- I think it's, like, the best performance, one of the best I've seen from Shannon ever. And I've seen all of his movies, and this is really good. And the fact that he can turn around and do something like um, Shotgun Stories... It's such a great film. So subtly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I fucking love that movie. The thing I really like about Shannon in this movie in particular, though, is how funny the role is. Like, it's terrifying how quickly he escalates the paranoia to the point where he's pulling out his teeth to, like, get rid of egg sacs. And it's, like, very difficult to watch. uh, Almost up there with that chicken scene in Killer Joe. But the way he, like, is very defiant about the bug's existence and, like, sort of like incredulously laughs in people's faces when they don't believe bugs exist. He's like, oh, you wouldn't know. Like, oh, you, you're the big expert coming in here telling me there's no bugs in my blood when I'm living this uh, situation. That stuff, like, made me laugh. Like, I think there's an undercurrent of humor in here the same way that Killer Joe, like, traffics in brutality and humor at the same time, and they're kind of interwoven. What I, what I like, too, towards the end when his doctor shows up, basically trying to take him away, it just totally... Like, I, I was just imagining for Ashley Judd, her character is like, oh, he's right. Like, he was right about everything. Like, the people coming to try to save them furthers this whole conspiracy. So if you, like, buy into it, there's, like, no going back. But the doctor much. has, like, no legitimacy to us. Like, his name's Dr. Sweet, which True. sounds fake. And then he yeah. free bases crack cocaine after being in there for, like, ten seconds. Like, is I'm this saying. guy a military doctor? Like, what is this thing? And you start thinking, like, wait, maybe Michael Shannon's, like, actually right. Or, like, how does this person who ties into Michael Shannon's paranoia actually have a relationship with her son? Right. How on earth could that connection be made? Yeah. I mean, I just took it as, like, he was just saying whatever to 
make her feel better in that moment. And then she has to make the mental leap after Dr. Sweet's taken out of the equation. She has to come up with the paranoid delusion of like how the bugs fit in with her son's disappearance. And she figures it out in herself while she's talking out loud. And her conclusion is that I am the super mother bug or whatever. Yes. Uh, which is another like another <laughs> moment that's like fucking chilling. Like it gives you goosebumps, but it's also really funny just because it's so absurdly like pushed to an extreme. Yeah, but it's not dumb at all. It holds a lot of aesthetic weight for the for the play. The way that she copes with it is putting all the onus on herself. You kind of get a uh, a bunch of insights into her needing this. She tells Michael Shannon, like, I'd rather talk with you about bugs than talk to nothing to nobody. I was trying to think of that quote earlier. Yeah, yeah great, great line. Devastating. And she calls him, like, the only thing I have in the world when her friend was like, you got to get out of this apartment. You're driving yourself <laughs> insane. So, yeah, it's like a very, like, heartfelt drama on top of being, like, an extreme... Body horror. Body horror, yeah. But, yeah, like I said, I just wish it kind of, like, eased up on some of that, like, Lionsgate horror cheapness in the first half. Like, it's trying a little too hard to be ingratiating, which makes it work better as a genre film, but if it had just been, like, a weird movie unto itself that sort of gradually got there the way the play did, I think it might have been better served. But like you said, the performances are probably the better thing to praise here. I mean, I think the last, like, 15 minutes of that movie are some of the most intense 15 minutes in anything I've ever seen. I can agree with that. And definitely... Hypnotic. Right, and I would put... The final scene up there in Freakin's like greatest scenes that he's filmed, like it really is, really is an amazing finale. We we sort of talked about this earlier when we were talking about body double, but I think Freakin and De Palma both know when to like push the envelope. There's like a point where if you step over it, you're kind of getting into ridiculous, over the top territory. But they're both not afraid to do that, and they choose those moments wisely. And Bug has a lot of those moments, too, where you could tell he's pushing it to a point of, like, insanity and almost comedy, but brings it back to a drama when he needs to. And I think that's, like, expert level to be able to do that. The way they manage throughout Bug, oh, no, really, it gets worse. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's pretty phenomenal that mm-hmm. after pulling his teeth out, it gets way worse. I mean, he looks like a, something out of a creature feature at the end of the movie. <laughs> it reminds me of like Hellraiser, maybe in the second yeah. Hellraiser. He looks like he like self-flayed himself almost. <laughs> like he has pretty much no skin left at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. It's really horrific. And that that bug zapper lighting is really like a large part of the look too. It's such a cold, ugly image and all of it reflecting off of the, the aluminum foil. Wrinkled foil. Yeah. yeah. Well, do y'all have any like overall thoughts on freaking as a director after seeing all five of these movies again, um, is there something about him that you maybe took away from watching them all in a row like this? Well, I'll preface it by saying I was excited to do this because he is one of, if not my favorite, directors. And watching these movies again, I realized what I like about them. It's the dark, almost nihilistic aspects mixed with violence and comedy. or But not comedy, but, you know, they were saying that over-the-top absurdity. That with, like, the technical mastery and his, like, visual style, just, I think it's all great. I mean, when watching the movies in a row like that, you can definitely see, like, he's done so many diverse movies, too. Like, if you look at his filmography, it's, like, all over the place. 
and it's mostly really good. I could see how someone would like look at him as like kind of a workman director who like took whatever project he could because uh, the movies do have like kind of a dissonant aesthetic to them. But I think the p- part of the reason that is is because he is sort of fascinated by like the specificity of settings. Even in Bug, you get these sort of like overhead helicopter shots establishing early on that this sort of motel space they're in is in the middle of fucking nowhere Oklahoma. Like there's this huge expanse of nothing around it. And you get scenes of Ashley Judd sort of drinking wine out of the bottle by herself and working in this like shit kicker lesbian bar down the street and counting her like crumpled up ones for tips. Uh, And there's just something really specific about that setting and I think like 80s LA in To Live and Die in LA, uh, South America in Sorcerer, and then mm-hmm. also um, in Cruising, especially, there's always a specificity of setting that he allows to command the aesthetic of the movie in a really interesting way that I think just as like important to his work as his nihilism and his like his eagerness to allow a movie to end ambiguously. Like the movie's all sort of end at this point where there's no finality to the story uh, and you're sort of like left like holding your breath for the next beat. I think he does all that very well. Yeah, so uh, the other day, Alexandra walked in on me watching an episode of Super Jail and <laughs> she said, Daddy, the, the show's really violent. And I said, well, yeah, violence is okay if it's funny. And, <laughs> and that's kind of what I learned from Freakin is... I'm mostly a unicorn and rainbows kind of guy. I love my comedies and I love my animated shorts and my cartoons. But the thing I learned to appreciate about Freakin is how he can use that darkness as a very, very funny thing. That's why some of his more nihilistic stuff never worked for me. And I saw him as largely a an action director. And so to see what he could do with Boys in the Band or with the two Tracy Let's Plays showed me a side of them that I wasn't really familiar with. So I'm very gracious that I was able to sort of rediscover a side of freaking that I wasn't really familiar with. Awesome. Well, once again, I wanted to say that this conversation is dedicated to Reed Lupin over at uh, That's Your Opinion podcast. Definitely recommend checking out that show, especially for keeping up with the news cycle for movies. And they do a really good job of like reviewing the, the more important releases of every week. And since they're in Chicago, they usually get a better jump on new releases than we do here. So I get to hear like nice small review about a week before I get to watch the movies myself. Do you have anything you want to promote while you're here? I've been writing pretty much regularly monthly for Anti-Gravity magazine. And uh, so, yeah, to keep an eye out for um, interviews with touring bands, interviews with local bands, local reviews, and features of, like, festivals and stuff that are happening around town. So awesome. keep your eyes cool. open. And uh, we'll be back in about a couple weeks. I think next episode we'll be talking about another one of my favorite directors, which is John Waters. Uh, they just ran a five film series over at the New Orleans Museum of Art and Brittany and I will be talking about all five of those uh, selections and uh, after that James and I will be digging into the world of Bridget Jones which will be a sort of a whiplash episode (laughs) (laughs) breaking form a little bit from what we're doing right now and uh, we'll see y'all then bye bye